0: it anyway. I mean we all have that experience. Doubt is um, a feeling of uncertainty or a lack of conviction. Really in spiritual practice there are two kinds of doubt. The first one is a hindrance. In fact, if you look at the list of the five hindrances, you'll find that doubt is there on that list. So for example, we want to have a rich spiritual life. We're looking for some kind of meaning, but maybe somehow we think I'm not really up to that. I feel cynical or dark or small or lost or fragmented. That doubt, which is sometimes called cynical doubt or skeptical doubt, is usually a byproduct of fear. I think its voice almost always starts its sentences with I. I could never do that. I could never meditate. I could never be enlightened. I don't have what it takes. I'm not even a spiritual person. That particular kind of doubt is a self-imposed limitation which can be based in experience. But just as often, it's my sense that it's a story with little or even no evidence to support it. That kind of doubt is a voice that just stops us in our tracks or a series of thoughts that Imprison us somehow. And that kind of doubt freezes our progress at the level of aspiration or longing or wishes. So before we even start something, we're already derailed. We're blocked or we're locked out by our own thinking and beliefs for the most part. All of us have that kind of doubt, right? Right? And when we have it, we could just be hmm, self-aware. We could see, all right, I'm afraid. I'm self-critical. I'm vulnerable. We could just confess that because it's not a crime to be self-critical or vulnerable. And that would be a totally and completely fine place from which to start a spiritual quest. So you're not Buddha, you're not Jesus, you're not a saint. Okay. So you're worried or you carry a grudge or maybe you have some bad habits. All right, fair enough. Welcome. Welcome. The Sufi poet Rumi said, ours is not a caravan of despair. (laughs) I love that so much. It needn't be a caravan of judgment either. Really, we don't all have to bring our inner critic and go to go to church, go to temple with our inner critic. Maybe you're worse than that. You know, maybe you're cranky and manipulative and dishonest, but you can start there too. People do. All of us do, really. Maybe you're a failure, maybe you're completely out of control and you're filled with self-loathing. You know what? That's good enough. It's a perfect place to start a spiritual practice just acknowledging your experience of yourself is a great start I'm just lazy, I'm arrogant and I'm worried everybody will figure it out that's great now rest into that feeling and breathe into that feeling And don't judge and don't try to say anything. Just stay with your wobbly, wavering self. That's actually good practice. I'm not just making that up. It's actually good practice. If you think that you need to wait to be good enough to start practice, you have missed the point of practice. That would be like somebody thinking they should not go to the hospital even though they have COVID, until they're better, until they're well. (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. The Buddha Dharma, you know, the path of Buddhism, it's medicine for what ails us. If you don't have any ailments, you don't need the Dharma. You should go play golf or whatever people do who don't have ailments. I wouldn't know since I have so many. But if you're plagued by the sufferings that are common to most beings, then you're ready to have a spiritual practice. You're qualified by virtue of your imperfections, by virtue of your imperfections. So that's the first kind of doubt, that sort of self-doubt story making that we do. That's not so good for Dharma. It's an obstacle, actually. But you can begin there. But there's this other kind of doubt which is actually necessary for practice. This is the doubt that causes us to question, to ponder, to not take somebody else's word as true just because they said something is true. When I have this kind of doubt, I want to know and to see with my own eyes. And that kind of doubt, when it's coupled with curiosity with investigation, with perseverance, that is the foundation of a spiritual practice. You actually need that kind of doubt. I think that if you're thinking that you're going to have a, a spiritual practice of any kind, including Buddhism, uh, for the, for a whole lifetime, you can't do it if you don't have that kind of doubt. So if you feel or experience doubt in yourself you don't need to worry about that you're going to have some it's really a very natural part of the human experience and I don't know what it is about our culture but we have a tendency for doubt to be a cause of shame as if it meant that we don't have faith in our dharma, faith in our spiritual practice or faith in ourselves or God or whatever is at the basis of your spiritual practice. But I don't think that's true. I don't think that because you have doubt, you lack faith necessarily. Faith can question. Faith can look with its own eyes. Faith can see for itself. The Buddha is said to have taught, come and see Come and see for yourself what's true. So there's a very delightful sutra called the Kalama Sutra. And in that sutra, a group of people from a village come and they say to the Buddha, so many people come through here. All, all of these Dharma teachers, these yogans, these lamas, whatever, the priests, they come through here and they all teach something different and a whole bunch of it conflicts. And how do we know what to believe? And the Buddha said, you have to see for yourself. I think this is often misconstrued. So if you read this this sutra even a little bit carefully, you'll see what he means. He doesn't really mean that we should just follow what resonates with our personal perspective or what seems logical to us. It's a little bit more sophisticated than that. He said when we hear teachings, we hear dharma, we should put things into practice, try them out, you know, and then we should see what results they yield. And then we should do that and we should check the sense of our results with people who seem to be wise, people who we deem to be wise. This, he said, is to test one's beliefs in an appropriate way. So if you put those things together, the ability to test your beliefs, the ability to question things in a wise way, the ability to choose wise and appropriate mentors, those three together are important factors for accomplishing all or any practice. So the Buddha in the Kalama Sutra is talking about the scriptures and the teachings of other people, but he's also talking about his own teachings. I think that indicates that he not only appreciated the need for doubt, he was actually even recommending it, this kind of doubt. And that his direct instruction to us was to question in a meticulous and careful way. So over time. I want to say too that I have the sense that it's almost impossible that anybody would ever find a doctrine of any kind that we could follow hook, line, and sinker. You know, that just seems fishy to me. I think if you say, No, I believe everything I've ever read in the Buddha Dharma, I just wonder how much of it you've read and how closely you read it. Same thing for Christianity, any other religion. But if we find things, or not if, but really when we find things that we feel we just can't accept it as true, I think it's good to be provisional in our rejection. Because over time in practice, as your experience changes, then your truth and your understanding also change. And then that means that how you hear and see and interpret teachings generally evolves over time and so my own teachers have always said to me when I say I don't know that one thing I just doesn't make sense to me I can't quite buy it they've always said okay fair enough how about if you just say I can't buy it for now leave a little crack in the door you know So if we're not convinced that something is wrong, we could investigate. or if if we are convinced that something is wrong, we could investigate. We could read different texts from different teachers. We should we could, not should, but we could ask uh, living teachers, you know, wise and intelligent people. We could examine how the difficult point fits in with other concepts that do resonate with us. Like, I don't really believe this, but when I look at it through the eyes of compassion, then I think, oh, maybe it makes a little sense. And then we can also set all of our thinking aside and just see what's true in our direct experience when we drop all of the stories that's very helpful for me sometimes. Sometimes I think it just can't be right. And then I just sit with something. And in that sitting, not thinking, not, not contemplating it, but just sitting meditation, mind on the breath or something like that. Zen, if you're Zen. Then maybe over time I come into a new understanding. I don't know how that understanding happens. We could also talk to mentors who are more experienced than ourselves. You know, I have a teacher. I talk to him often about things that are difficult for me, points I can't quite buy into, or I don't understand, or I don't relate to at all. And because I trust and appreciate the effects of his practice in his life, the proof of the pudding of his practice, I like to say, Uh, sometimes that helps me shift my view or at least helps me stay open to not having a fixed view. And I think then we can and we should, when I read this sutra, I'm reminded, you know, we should just maintain an open mind. We should be looking for all the things we can learn without looking for proof that this is true or proof that this is not true. Just what can we learn? It's also important to understand that dharma has so many layers of meaning. There's the literal layer, which is kind of the least bang for the buck. When you hear the literal layer of a teaching, it's kind of the obvious. And then there are figurative, metaphorical, so many layers of teaching. And some teachings, I think, kind of reveal themselves to you when you're ready. And that sounds a little woo-woo, but you've read a book, haven't you? A Dharma book at some point and you read it and you think, well, I don't know, it's okay. I kind of got one or two things, but gosh, it was a couple hundred pages. I was hoping for more. And so you put it back on your bookshelf. And one day, maybe five years later, if you're still practicing, you pick up that book and you read it again and you think, holy cow, this is jam-packed with profound teachings. (laughs) <laughs> this is a, I don't think this is just a Buddhist experience, you know, it's just, your life goes by, your context is deeper and richer. And so things which didn't even appear on the page now appear, and things which did appear now appear profound. I think when you read things with this kind of understanding, that things unfold over time with practice. That practice is like um, it's like a soup pot, you know. It cooks you over time. So when you read and study and practice, you're planting seeds for a future understanding, future understanding, and gradually, all that takes root. And I don't see any reason whatsoever, no benefit really, in trying to rush to answers. Because the questions are so precious. The questions are so valuable. Maybe another thing to be said about that is that it's important to put your confidence in the right places in all of this. You know, if you have faith in your own potential for awakening your own Buddha nature, we say in Buddhism, then you can at least proceed with investigation and experiments on your own like the Buddha talked about. We don't have to know the ending place. I think, you know, I look at enlightenment and I think I don't know anything about enlightenment and I don't feel like I really need to but I feel really confident that I have the potential for that and so I can continue to practice We don't even need to know the whole path. The Buddha Dharma is fairly complex. It's laid out beautifully and it it really is laid out end to end. But sometimes that can be overwhelming to see the whole path. You just kind of need, in this case, enough confidence to pack a suitcase and get out there and walk the path. So let's let's go back now around to the beginning and let's look at that first kind of doubt, that self-doubt. Everybody has this. Even the most confident looking people in the world, if you talk to them in private and if there is a trusting relationship there, you'll learn they have some self-doubt. So I just want to destigmatize self-doubt and say it's normal right we all have it so first of all if your doubt is really fear you can look at that what are you afraid of failure most people will say failure of some kind failure to live up to someone else's expectations or literally the thing i'm trying to do i don't want to try meditation because i'll just fail my mind is so busy and crazy But it's really true, I think. If you're going to succeed ever, you will fail. I mean, you will not just fail once. You will fail over and over and over and over again. So failure itself is not really much of a problem. It's more our relationship to the failure that's a problem. Why are we going to worry about that? When we fail and we use it wisely, it informs our future success, right? I remember reading somewhere along the line, I don't remember where, but the founder of Starbucks coffee was turned down by 217 of the 242 investors he talked to in the beginning. So he was turned down 217 times. I just think that's so great. So that guy made, I think, a kind of average cup of coffee and he still managed to have a roaring success right i mean if coffee is your what you're going for and money is what you're going for he was really out there with a success but he failed 217 times on the way to convincing people to support that business from a dharma perspective i think failure i doubt sorry is a thought it's a state of mind It arises, it's there, and then like every other state of mind, it passes. So you can't stop it from arising. That's just karma ripening. When X and Y and Z come together, you know, in a moment, then you feel doubt, okay. It's like weather, it's just going to happen. But you don't have to believe the story told by doubting thoughts. I don't really think it's reasonable. I was thinking about this before recording this. I don't think it's reasonable to have a zero bar for this kind of doubt as a goal. I just don't think that's human. But I do think it's interesting to consider that doubt is not even actually personal. It's like I said just a minute ago, for you as a unique person, unique in all of time and space, unique in the whole universe, when your personal set of causes and conditions that are needed to produce doubt come together, doubt arises in your mind stream. I mean, if you if you put blue dye on your hands, your hand turns blue. That is not a personal event. That's science. <laughs> so... You don't have to believe the story when the doubt arises. That's what's important. It's kind of good, I think, if you can notice it, a little self-observation, a little steady awareness, and if you can notice how that doubt affects you. But you don't have to believe that what the voice of doubt says is true. You don't have to accept its story. It's kind of like if somebody moved three houses down from you in your neighborhood and they saw you in the, you know going up the driveway to your house and they said, you know, you are not capable of meditation. <laughs> just be, who are you? We've never met. How would you know that? You wouldn't be crushed, right? No need. You'd just say, that's a crazy cat lady who just moved in next door. Sometimes I think that when doubt arises in my own experience, it's a sign that I've hit a little wall of some kind, I'm tired, or I'm overwhelmed, or I'm under-resourced somehow. Or sometimes it's just that I'm out on the edge of unfamiliar territory. So you might remember that I practice in the Tibetan tradition, and I live in a Zen monastery. So that's a Japanese tradition, so it's a completely different tradition. Same general principles of Buddhism, but the forms are very different. So I've bowed literally hundreds of thousands of times in the Tibetan tradition. But in the Japanese tradition, when I first came, I had no clue how to bow in the world of Japanese Buddhism. So I had some doubt. Is this the right thing? Should I be here? What will people think? That's really natural to be nervous about that or to worry that I might not be up to having a spiritual life in the context of a Zen monastery, all of that. But those worries are not the same as actual evidence of anything. They're just symptoms of discomfort, natural discomfort. So there's really nothing to fix there other than to see with clear eyes where that doubt comes from. And then when that doubt arises, you have to let the story go. And then you have to look and see in that very moment what's true. So in the case of not bowing, the first time I bowed in the Zendo and I realized, wow, this is not what everyone else is doing. I'm doing something totally different. And I started to feel out of place and nervous and full of doubt then I just see in the moment what's true. What's true is everybody else is bowing and they're paying attention to their bow. And even if they did have a judgment, really, who cares? So when you feel doubt, that naturally arising doubt of being out on an edge sometime, you don't need to think more about it. And just check in and look at your mind, look at your heart. What's true right now in this moment? Self-doubt, also I want to say, we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater here. It's an artifact of common sense and kind of an ordinary kind of wisdom. So you see things, you connect dots. Whatever you're doing, there are some issues. And so, of course, you wonder, can I do this? Should I do this? That's not a problem. That's a good sign. That's discernment. That's not even really doubt in the way that I see it. So discernment might slow you down while you evaluate something, but it shouldn't just stop you in your tracks. It definitely shouldn't just derail you altogether. Or if it does, then doubt is not your problem. You have some other problem. Paralysis by analysis. Yeah, paralysis by analysis. In the end, you know, in practice to make some progress on the path means that you have to get out of your comfort zone so you will feel fear and your ego will communicate its sense of risk with fear messages pew 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 red light going off you know (laughs) good when it does that you know you're on the right track you just moved out of your comfort zone try to keep at least some sense of humor about this but also, do understand that deep practice requires us to dismantle our belief that self cherishing is a means or the means to happiness. Gotta understand, this is a radical thing to do to adopt the belief and to dismantle the belief that self cherishing is a means to happiness. That is very radical. And then beyond that, deep practice eventually leads to the understanding that you don't even actually exist in the way that you have conditioned yourself to believe that you do. You are hmm, a brief expression of enlightened energy. And then you die. And then you manifest as something else. (laughs) But this is a very advanced aspect of practice, so if you don't quite feel ready to go there, don't worry. You just start right here, wherever you are. You're just trying to be a little more relaxed, a little more sane. You're just trying to notice your self-doubt. That's perfect. Then you can take a good first step from there, and a second, and a third, and a hundredth, and a thousandth. So that's the first kind of doubt. That second kind of doubt is really precious. It's your sense talking, your discernment. This is the part of thinking mind that keeps you from being duped. And you have direct encouragement from the words of the Buddha to be discerning. So take heart in that doubt. Respect that doubt, value it and engage with it. And as you progress step by step in practice, you will gain the conviction of direct experience. This is not the belief or the idea. This means I tasted lemon on my own tongue and no one can ever tell me that it's sweet. And I know the difference between lemon and chocolate from experience. So you can try to talk me out of it. It's going to be hard because I've had direct experience. So in the Dharma, for example, if you focus on the happiness of others and you find that you are indeed, just as the teaching said, happier yourself and less drenched in your own suffering, then you'll have confidence that that teaching is true. No one will have to convince you of that because you saw it operative in your own life. And so you'll believe it on some level. If you meditate long enough and deeply enough, you'll see that the thoughts are in your mind, thoughts are in your mind, that you experience them every hour of every day. But if you look carefully, you will also see there is no evidence at all, other than the fact that you experience them for your existence. They don't have any form or shape or color, size. They don't come from anywhere. You don't see them going somewhere. You won't need Buddhism to tell you the truth of that mystery. You'll see for yourself. Or if you see through your direct investigation that everything you experience is impermanent, your faith in the teaching of impermanence will strengthen on its own, in its own time. This second doubt is really an essential ingredient in faith in the path or confidence in the path. Faith is a kind of um, transitory state. You know, it's not this, not that. You're not believing something. You're not exactly disbelieving it. You are coming to know the truth for yourself as you're poised there between believing and disbelieving, little by little by little by little, in those methods that I talked about a minute ago in the Kalama Sutra. So that kind of faith is not the faith, it's not blind faith, which is bereft of any proof, but I believe it anyway. It's different from that. It's a confidence that you gain through careful investigation, just like the sutra suggested. Even then, at any point along the way, we all know we could be wrong in this moment. We believe it now, but we might be wrong. That Dynamic, that willingness, that openness, that acknowledgement is so precious. We have to rest with some openness in the state of not knowing for sure. And this will leave us with no final sense of being right. And that is perfect. Perfect the awakening heart, the awakening mind, it has to be open, present, wide awake, constantly learning. So short of enlightenment, it is never finished in its journey of dedication to the truth. This willingness to be groundless, to be wide-eyed, not to know But to be knowing, that's real practice. That's your true self.